Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. For those of you that are using the black Bibles in the seats around you, the pew Bibles, church Bibles, 1 John, chapter 1 can be found on page 959. Our text that we will focus on is 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, and I will be preaching a sermon. That's the word we often use here at Embassy, a speech, a message, a talk, a homily, sermons. What's the point of them? Why are we doing this right now? I have the privilege of preaching sermons as my profession, so I've done a lot of them. I think easily well over 500 or more. And as you all know, I stand at the door on your way out. Some of you just say hello, which I love. Please greet me at the door if I'm not busy. Sometimes in those conversations, I hear feedback immediately about the sermon. Some of you have given me instant feedback on what you thought. And I've decided, as we're here toward the end of the new year, to give you top five most common reasons people tell me that they listen to sermons. Number one, intellectual education. I think a lot of people want to come to church and listen to the preaching of God's word to learn something new. I hear this comment a lot. Wow, pastor, That was really fascinating. I never knew that about the Bible. You taught me something, and I learned something from the sermon. These people will often be taking notes, which I'm a fan of. It's a good thing. Sometimes the sermon could be a little more Bible study focused or lecture heavy, but that's one of the reasons I often hear. Reason number one, and these aren't necessarily in order. They're just the five that just came to my mind, and I typed them down after the years of experience of preaching. First is intellectual education, learning something. Second, heartfelt adoration, worship, gazing at the glory and the beauty of God by seeing the word that is Jesus Christ exalting in him. This is one of my favorite purposes of preaching and one that I like to sometimes contrast with the first one. Sermons, I think, should teach you about God's word. And you often might learn something, but there are some of the best sermons you'll ever hear and you'll never learn something new, but you will gaze at something old that you've heard a thousand times. But in the freshness of that moment, through the experience of being led to the cross, you worship. Third, intellectual education, heartfelt adoration. Third, moral transformation. And in there, I would include conversion. Moral transformation. The preaching of God's word encourages repentance of sins. Preaching, as we often hear it, even in the most popular of sense, you're preaching at me, and oftentimes in a negative connotation, preaching at me like you're telling me what to do. I think that's fair. Pastor Phil, I was really convicted when you challenged me in this way. I've heard that many, many times. Oftentimes when we're talking after church, we might say, hey, what was your takeaway from the sermon? 
applications. I have a problem, and the sermon helped me with this problem, and I'm being transformed from the preaching and teaching of God's word. Intellectual education, heartfelt adoration, moral transformation. I like these three. The next two on the list, you might notice, probably not most of our favorites, but let's just be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. I've heard these things a lot. Number four, fleeting fascination is what I'm calling this. In other words, I did a good job not putting you to sleep. Oh, pastor, good job. I didn't fall asleep this time. Seriously, I have heard that comment dozens of times, meaning I must have been entertaining, engaging, or did something that was interesting. Probably one of my favorite of all time comments along this lines was when somebody, I think just was like, uh, he's at the door, I think I need to say something, and they shook my hand. Good speech, pastor. It was, it was tolerable. Fleeting fascination, meaning it didn't change your life. You're not thinking about it much more. You didn't go home and like read and pick up a new book or like, wow, that was really profound. I'm going to study this for the rest of the week. Fleeting. Interesting. It passed the time. My wife made me come here. My mom and dad said, we're going to church again. And yeah, that was interesting. Number five. General inspiration. Now, this one is very similar to worship, but I say general because it's this vague, non-specific to Christ, the triune God, but just a a warm, encouraging pick-me-up, a general sense of hope, and like, I was inspired by that. Thanks, Pastor. And it's not specific to the actual sermon. Perhaps at times, some of the most like difficult responses that I have when I'm talking to someone after the sermon is when they're like, so pastor, you want to know what I was thinking about during your sermon? I'm like, yeah. And then they talk about something completely different than what I just spent the last week or more pouring over. And they're like completely in a different world altogether. But they were like so inspired by the message. And I'm like, great. Praise God for that, whatever that was. I'm being open and honest with you all, and I'm not trying to now give all of you anxiety about greeting me at the door. I'm trying to get you to think, what is the purpose of preaching? Embassy Church is centered around this practice of preaching. It's the longest thing we do in our Sunday gatherings, if you've paid attention. Why give so much time, 40, 50 minutes, to this on a weekly basis? What are we trying to accomplish? Interestingly, what John is going to tell us in his introduction of 1 John does not crack the top five. It's a completely different purpose statement and one that we should spend an entire sermon on this morning. Follow along as I read 1 John chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, and I will conclude at the end of verse 5. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And that'll end our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer for us is that we will understand John's purpose for preaching from 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Amen. I've told you the last two Sundays that I have one single sentence for this section, specifically verses 1 through 4. The sentence goes like this, proclaim the word of life. We, John in the first century, he proclaims, and we too, we proclaim the word of life for the purpose of what? That's where we find ourselves as we've been unpacking the first half the last two Sundays. We proclaim. How do we proclaim things? That was last Sunday. What's the message we proclaim in a nutshell? The word of life. That was week one and week two. We proclaim the word of life. The next two Sundays will be the second half of this sentence. For the purpose. The purpose of proclaiming the word of life is, church, hopefully some of you already know the answer because I've been giving it repeatedly the last two Sundays. For the purpose of joy-filled participation in the age to come. We will spend the next two Sundays today and, Lord willing, Christmas Eve next week, Thinking through joy-filled participation. This week, the word participation, and next week, the adjective, the description of joy. The kind of quality that this participation has for those who are embraced and sharing in this fellowship with God and one another. So here's the outline for today. We are unpacking a single word from this big idea, and it's the word participation. And so I will be answering, what is participation? And here you might learn something new. Second, we will look at the sentence that this word appears in. So we'll go from a single word, the word participation, that's point one. Point two in the outline will be the sentence that the word fits in. And we're going to look at verse three in its specific context. What is he saying about participation there? And when we unpack it, we will answer who the participation is with. Third and finally, we're going to ask a very practical but profound how. How? How is this participation, this fellowship accomplished? And the answer will come from the broader paragraph or our big idea. Let's start right away. Question one. What is participation? Let's go to the original language just because we need to in this case. We don't always, but in this case, we definitely do. Koinonia is the word. Koine is even the description of the Greek language that the Bible in the New Testament was written in. Koine Greek. Koine is its root. Koine means common. So I mean a common Greek language that was spread across 
the Roman Empire. Koinonia, then, is about a kind of shared common partnership. Yeah, actually, it's translated that way in Philippians at the beginning and the end of the letter, partnership. Outside of the New Testament, the word koinonia, so Greek language, words used not just in the Bible, but outside of the Bible, it means a business partnership. Like two people that have agreed for a certain financial gain to work together, koinonia. Koinonia is also translated at times to mean partaker, that you take your part in the whole. You as an individual participating or partaking in something that includes something more than just you. The word here is translated fellowship in the ESV. It's an excellent translation. It does, I think, capture the meaning, but a few years back, a book recommended to me that I started reading had this very helpful description definition of koinonia, and I share it with you now. The author says, the normal translation of koinonia that you find in the New Testament is the word fellowship, as you see here in 1 John 1, 3. But that coin has been worn smooth over long use. It can mean a business partnership, which I just explained. That's part of the meaning. But again, that doesn't quite get to the heart of it. And the heart of a word is what really matters. When words start to run out and you just keep using added synonyms, we need to move on from words to images. Koinonia. It's the look of delight when a dear friend shows up unexpected. It's the glance of understanding between two musicians as together they say something utterly beautiful. It's the long squeeze of a hand by a hospital bed. It's the contentment and gratitude that accompanied shared worship and prayer. It is all of this, and it is so much more. End quote. Koinonia. Do you see why we're doing an entire sermon? If this word is loaded with this much depth and meaning. I think it's worth your time. The author suggests that perhaps we need not just synonyms, more words to define words, but we need images. A partnership. Well, this could be like your coworker, a group of people who are united together because they share the same employer. Yeah, that's koinonia. A trade or labor union is a kind of koinonia. It's a group of people who don't have the same employer necessarily, but they're united together through a union that is maintaining or improving the conditions of their work. Or for those of you who are business owners, create a lot of headaches for you and your company. A sports team, a group of people who are united together because they not only play the same sport, so that's a kind of koinonia, I am a football player, whether you mean soccer or American football. So we have a, a common bond, we share that we all play football. But now we're on the same team. We, we have koinonia even more intimately on the same team together. Interestingly, I did this Google search. What is the weirdest Facebook group on the internet? And this popped up. The Old Lawnmower Part 
Facebook group, which is a group of people who are united together by the hobby of taking old lawnmower parts and then reusing them and turning them into artwork. That's koinonia. Strangely enough, all of those participants don't even own lawnmowers. They all live in apartments. A church is a koinonia. But much, much more than these co-worker labor unions, Facebook groups, sports teams, a church is a group of people who are united together by the preaching of the gospel. As the gospel is faithfully preached, the act of preaching and the message that is preached unites those people with a common doctrine that they all believe and a common way of life that Jesus himself summarizes as love God and love your neighbor. Or a callback from last Sunday's sermon, love and life is the message we proclaim. An image then. Are you all more like grapes growing on a vine or a sack of marbles that on Sundays at 11.30 we've collected together a time and place for a weekly event? I hope you see the important distinction that I just made. We are coming together But the Bible's description of koinonia, of fellowship, is much more like you and I growing intimately connected to one another, that the life flowing through the vine that is Jesus Christ spreads out into the branches, and we are in him, and he is in us, and therefore we're in one another. That is a profound koinonia. You are not just simply an individual marble that has, on occasion, found yourself at a pew at 11.30 a.m. at the First United Methodist Church in Palatine from time to time. And then, as soon as the service ends and the benediction is given, you then roll out as we are no longer connected to one another. That is sadly what a lot of people think church is. A aggregation of not really interconnected fellowship but the Bible says something so so much more we have a shepherd and the sheep they hear his voice and when he calls he calls them by name and he leads them that's koinonia that's the image of the church that John himself gives in John chapter 10 John, as I alluded to, teaches in John 15 as recording the words of Jesus. We are all small branches bearing fruit as we abide in the vine that is Jesus Christ. Or we could move beyond this author, Paul, and find that koinonia is used and images are given of the church where we are a household. We are a family. We call each other brothers and sisters. God is our father. Christ is our older brother. Jesus himself, stretching out his hands toward the disciples, said, Here are my mother and my brothers, not my biological siblings, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. They are my brother and my sister and my mother. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 7 and 8 gives perhaps one of the most intimate koinonia pictures in all of the Bible. 
He says, we were gentle among you. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Do you see what I'm pointing to here in 2 Thessalonians? Through the gospel of God, we share and we proclaim, but that creates a community that is like the relationship between a nursing mother and a child. Wow. Breathtaking. Is it true, church? Is that at all what you've ever experienced, even on this side of heaven? Paul's saying that's what he experienced. He later describes the church like a profound mystery between a husband and a wife. I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and his church. Peter, adding to the authors who describe the people of God as a koinonia, a bound together fellowship, describes us as a holy nation a royal priesthood, a people that have been personally bought and treasured by God himself, that we're like a bunch of stones that have been used to build a temple, a spiritual house built on top of one another. Or perhaps the most common image of all, we are the body of Christ. Some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are mouths, some of us are ears. We are all one in the diverse members of the body, one together. And when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together. Oh, that's too bad for you. Well, uh, I'm moving on, not interested, not gonna pray, go on with your day. Your rejoicing is my rejoicing. Your happiness is my happiness. Your sorrow is my sorrow. That's koinonia. Question two. Who does John say that we have this koinonia fellowship with? Now we've defined, described, depicted the word. How about the sentence? Read it with me carefully, closely. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm just going to unpack this, okay? Look very closely, follow along very carefully. I'm not going to do anything other than just walk you through this verse. That which we've seen and heard, that is a repetition of what he already said in verse 1. It's repeating that what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've beheld and investigated is the word of life. And then in verse 2, there's a parenthesis describing the eternal nature of the word of life. And we've testified to it. We've, we're eyewitnesses of that word of life that was made visible and manifest. So then in verse 3, he's coming back. He's like, wait, I lost my train of thought. Or he's intentionally trying to be repetitive. You guess. The point is, he's coming back to where he started from verse 1. That which we've seen and we've heard, which is the word of life, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Main point. Let me come back to that main point. We're proclaiming to you the word of life, the thing we've seen and heard that's been made visible. And then here, 
we get a statement purpose clause. The words, so that, are telling us, now here's why we do that. Here's the so what, who cares statement. So that you too may have fellowship with us. Oh, that's new. We've not heard this yet. He's been repetitive the first two verses. Now in verse 3, after repeating himself again, we get the purpose for proclaiming the word of life is koinonia. Fellowship with us. We're proclaiming, John, and the we here is, I think, probably a reference to the apostle eyewitnesses that are also proclaiming the same gospel. We, the apostles, are proclaiming to you the eyewitness testimony that we saw of the word of life became visible, so you'll have fellowship, participation, a partaking, a sharing kind of partnership with us in this gospel proclamation work. Fellowship. Huh. In all of the years, I've never heard somebody come up to me and say, Pastor Phil, thank you for that message. You know what I got out of it? Fellowship. Participation. I'm serious. I can't think. I tried all week long. Has anybody ever greeted me at the door? and said, you know, next week I'm really looking forward to the way that the gospel unites us as a church, as a family. We proclaim the word of life not for intellectual education, heartfelt adoration, moral transformation, fleeting fascination, or general inspiration, my top five. Something even bigger, I think, is at play when John says, so that we will have fellowship together. For the purpose of participation with us. But that's not all. That's not all he says. He could just stop there. The sentence could end. Period. Done. Moving on. Verse 4. I am proclaiming so that we can have fellowship, so that we're on the same page. So we're working together in church ministry and proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Amen. It's true. It's good. It's actually really glorious. That'd make a great sermon. That's not this sermon because that's not verse 3. It makes sense. I hope you can understand just that first line. He wants them to be unified in the gospel message precisely because, as we know from the rest of the letter of John, as we're going to find out soon enough, Lord willing, some people have left. Some people have left the preaching of the gospel. Some people have deserted the true tenets of the Christian faith. They've denied the divinity, deity, the supernatural union of a God and man together, the incarnation. Some, some people think that the Son of God did not take on human flesh. They've left They've walked away. He wants them to be reunited and reconfirmed in their conviction about the gospel. That's the first part of the line. So that you'll have fellowship with the apostolic true message of the gospel. But he says this participation is not only with us. It is also koinonia with God the Father. John, elaborating and adding to this description of unity and fellowship, is not just saying, guys, we share unity because we all believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
sent from heaven to earth, took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, the sins of not only us, but the whole world, he's going to say in 1 John 2, 2. And those who would like to have their sins forgiven, they could come and confess to God on the basis of Jesus Christ, and he is just, he will forgive them of those sins. And through that preaching of the gospel, through that confession of sin and response to the gospel, we're united in fellowship with one another. But he says also with God the Father. Elaborating that the unity and fellowship is not just with you and me in this room. It's not just an earthly unity or a human fellowship. That's true. I'm hopefully preaching true things that some of you are enjoying and believing and agreeing and confirming and say, we're on the same page, Pastor Phil. But he is saying something so much more profound and heavenly and otherworldly. The fellowship that we share with one another through the preaching of the gospel is a fellowship with God the Father. And he could have stopped there or he could have just said generally, God. But he adds a last and final line, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, the work that John has just done for us to help us understand that the eternal Son of God has forever existed in an intimate, personal relationship with the Father. This is what verse 2 makes very clear. That word of life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify and proclaim to you eternal life. He is the eternal life. His life is from eternity. And he was with the Father, and that eternal life from heaven has been made manifest to us on the earth. And we've touched it, and we've seen it, and we've heard it. And we can share in that fellowship of the Trinity that fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, through repentance of sins, confession of sin, and cleansing of all our unrighteousness. That, that brings us into union with the most holy of holies in heaven. Wow! The preaching of the gospel produces a fellowship with other Christians on earth, but at the same time joins those Christians in a koinonia fellowship that exists between God the Father and with God the Son and the Spirit. It is, of course, implied as he will further elaborate in 1 John. Who is our fellowship with? One another. Those who repent of sin those who trust in Christ, those who believe the gospel, those who are walking in the light and not in the darkness. So, how might this apply to us? Very, very practically. Preaching should give moral instructions, and I hope that from the density of what has been communicated, it does not fail to trickle down to the details of your everyday life. Here's some interesting observations I've made as I've thought, pondered, reflected on you. I'm not preaching to the global church. I'm preaching to this fellowship right now. Here's my first takeaway. Based on questions one and two, there's a kind of fellowship that describes our relationship with each other and God. First takeaway. You sitting here today, if you're a Christian, if you believe the gospel, if you've been baptized upon your repentance of sin and your faith in Jesus Christ, you are an individual. But 
your deepest and truest and eternal identity is not as an individual. Individual Christianity, it doesn't exist. It's not being described here. It should not be pursued. It should not be tolerated. It should be repented of. The natural and inherited identity or sense of self that you were born into this world with, it needs to die. It's good for you if it does. It's better for society and you for the sake of what verse 4 and next week's sermon is, for your joy. Not to die for the sake of death. We're, we're martyrs. For the death of the life that was toward death. So that you could have life in Jesus Christ. This speaks about so many interesting and intricate details of open, transparent honesty should mark our relationships with one another. Not cover-up. Not hiding. Not, that's my private, personal life. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. The God we have fellowship with, he is pure light. In him there is no darkness. Those who are in fellowship with him should love the light shining in on all of the deep, darkest secrets of your heart, not for the sake of humiliation, but for the sake of sanctification, to make you more like his son. You have to trust him, though. You have to believe that just like in the Garden of Eden, when they sinned and they ran from God and they hid in the darkness, he called them out because he wanted to cover them and promise them a victory over the evil that led them into the sin in the first place. Do you believe that that's what this God is like? That his message is about light, love, life. Your personal truth that you have in and of yourself needs to bow down to the objective, defendable standard of truth that is Jesus Christ. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? David preached this a couple weeks ago. Truth, love, well, that's true for you. That's your truth. That does not exist. The fellowship that we share as a church is about acknowledging and believing together that there is a definitive truth. And it is Jesus Christ. He is the way and he is the truth. For those of you that have families who are not Christians, so you have family members, they're not Christians. Jesus himself, as I alluded to from Matthew chapter 11, teaches us that your biological family is lesser in terms of priority than your Christian family. Meaning, some of you in this room, your biological family are Christians, so it's kind of a moot point. But for many Christians, when you have non-Christian family members, you should love them, you should preach the gospel to them, you should care for them. Absolutely. I'm not saying that they're not important, but I am stating that there is an eternal, forever family in the fellowship of the church and the eternal fellowship we will share with God forever and ever and ever. That's of greater importance. It should be. It should be reflected then in the way that we think about our career, our child rearing, our parenting. Parents, 
Are your children's faith being stirred up by meaningful fellowship that comes through regular hearing of the proclamation of the gospel? Or do extracurricular activities, educational choices, crowd out the opportunity to regularly hear the word that actually brings one into fellowship with God the Father and Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Travel sports teams love to take away your Sundays, parents. Be forewarned of the futility of a sports, educational, academic scholarship for the sake of one losing their soul. This kind of fellowship, I know it seems like, well, that's what the pastor's supposed to say. Church is really important. It's not what the pastor's supposed to say. It's what 1 John 1, 3 says. Can you think of a more significant, higher calling or significant fellowship than one that lasts forever and ever for all of eternity with God? I think this is basic logic, friends. I'm not just trying to get you to sign up for some sort of activity or say, We've got more nursery volunteers, so here's the time in the sermon where I want to guilt trip all of you to spend more time at church. I am pleading with you to see that the message of the gospel is about joy-filled, life-flowing fellowship in none other than the triune God. I don't think you'll hear a better invitation in any other activity from any other society or institution in the world. Here we are. You will only hear this calling and invitation to come and participate, share in, rejoice in the fellowship of God the Father, in Christ the Son, in the Holy Trinity, in this context. And it only comes, as we've heard, through the preaching of the gospel, the word of life, the message about Christ, and the message that it is he himself, Christ himself, that we are sharing things in common with. Brothers and sisters, it is extremely important as a second takeaway that we understand our unity in this church to be centered around the person and the works of Jesus. He is affirming to this audience, you've heard what we've seen. The apostles' eyewitness testimony, their message, their proclamation of the true gospel. There is a true definition of the gospel. It's out in the light. It's out in the public. It's not hidden. It's not so difficult that little children can't understand it. It is the message about God sending his son into the world to rescue sinners and that he rose again from the dead after paying the penalty for their sin on the cross, rising again from the dead, ascending to heaven, and then giving us through the power of the Spirit the opportunity for us to repent of our sin, trust in Jesus, and have the very fellowship that we're discussing. So, Think about this. How many churches are actually united in koinonia fellowship because of their race or ethnicity? How many of you go to a church, look around, and say, there's not enough people that are my age. I'm out. How many of us can confess or admit that some churches, we like music styles more than we like the message of Christ centering the church. You could be in a single church that has two different worship services with different preferential music styles. Do you want something slow and traditional or do you want something upbeat? Let's divide the church over that. What a travesty. The holy union 
of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit can be shared and participated with, and we're going to divide churches over what style of music you like? I, d I wonder, have you thought about it like that? Hobbies, political opinions, educational levels. Are you single, married, do you have children, do you not have children? I've heard it confessed even from people that have visited this church. Well, I feel single or divorced or lonely. This church seems like it's for, and then fill in the blank. Embassy church. We're sinners. We don't have it all together. What I'm preaching is really high bar. I think it should be. Let's not lower the bar. The thing we should be unified on is Christ. Jesus Christ, the message of Christ, our union, our koinonia, our fellowship is not what your skin color is, how much money's in your bank account, where you grew up, what your first language was, your mom and dad, what you think should happen in the next 2024 election. Nope, nope, nope. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Do you agree? Any amens? Our biblical convictions should guide our understanding of our unity. We print them on a piece of paper and say, we're not hiding anything. Do you want to know what we believe? It's on our website. Do you want to know what unites us together? It's the gospel. We offer classes six, seven times a year to say, if you're new with our church, we want to sit down and tell you we are not hiding anything, pulling any punches. We're not going to six months in say, by the way, we believe some weird snake handling stuff and we have this special service once a year where we're going to deal with vipers and poisonous snakes. It's not going to happen. We want to be open in the light. Here's who we are. We are Jesus church. You want to be involved? You want to be in fellowship? Be a Jesus person. This conviction about the gospel being the center of our unity, it should guide us. It should guide us in how we think about what it means to be a member of a local church. I believe to the degree that you will pour out yourself in others-centered love will be to the degree that you will experience the purpose and meaning that you were made for, the existence of life in the first place, and the definition of eternal life. The proclaimed message about the true life that is found, the true life that is found in Christ and him alone, giving himself for the sake of others, his others-centered love, that is the definition that should guide us into our unity and union in Christ. Koinonia is the word. The fellowship we have is with one another through the fellowship that we share mysteriously with the triune God. Third and finally, how? How do we participate in this? How, how does this work? How does preaching produce participation? Why is what I'm doing right now creating a mysterious spirit supernatural community that is unlike anything else in the whole world? Way better than the Lawnmower Facebook Club. Why? For that, I'm going to ask Charles Simeon to give us a help. Charles Simeon, if you don't know, born on September 24th, 1759. Charles Simeon's only distinction, according to one biography in his childhood, was that he was considered to be the ugliest boy in his school. After completing his education at none other than Cambridge, one of the elite institutions in England, 
He was ordained as a pastor and accepted an appointment to be the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. This is 1782. The church's response, since it's a government-sanctioned, state-sponsored church, they didn't vote on it. They, they just received, by the way, Charles Simeon is your new pastor. So the church's response to having him selected as their pastor was not joy, was not celebration, was not gratitude. It was some of the most stubborn and strong opposition you will ever hear about in church history. For the first 10 years of his pastorate, church members refused to listen to Simeon's sermons. They would put barriers and then lock those barriers on the pews so that when new visitors came in, they would not have a seat to sit at. Talk about welcoming church, friends. You could only imagine how discouraging this might have been for this new, freshly minted pastor in his 20s. But not only did he not quit or walk away, he used his own money to bring in extra chairs only to have the lay leaders of the church come in and before Simeon got there, throw the chairs out into the streets, forcing again visitors to stand when he preached. Back and forth it would go for the first 20 years of his preaching ministry. 20. Huh. Can you guys just imagine the kind of perseverance to preach when people are acting this way? That's not unity, is it? Praise be to God, he didn't quit. He didn't give up. And he committed himself to just unleash the word of God one sentence, one word, one verse at a time. He's known as one of the early adopters in the English-speaking world of what we call expositional preaching. Incidents of hurling bricks through his windows while he was preaching continued and remained until eventually it turned. Until the faithful preaching of God's word turned, melted, humbled the heart of his people, saved sinners, exalted the Savior, and promoted holiness. He had 34 more years after those 20 volatile years of unity and love and peace and joy at Holy Trinity Church. 54 years of faithful expository preaching. The preaching of God's word. One word, one verse at a time. Bringing out of scripture what is there, not thrusting what I think to be there. That's a well-known quote from Simeon. He understood his 54 years of ministry as being that. I bring out of scripture what is there. I do not thrust what I think to be there. And the purpose of my ministry is humble the sinner, exalt the Savior, and promote holiness. Now, it would have been really cool if he would have said participation in the triune God. But I actually think the first three on my top five and these three things that Simeon says, humble the sinner, exalt the Savior, and promote corporate, collective, koinonia. I do think, friends, that's how the preaching of the gospel transforms the hard, penitent, stubborn heart of a sinner. Melts them. Leads them to just awe and worship and adoration. And causes by the power of the Holy Spirit for them to love others in a, a kind of newfound energy, spirit within them. To love God 
and love their neighbor as themselves. Let me give you a little clip of this sort of thing, the gospel. See if this just snippet from a sermon from 1,500 years ago, the preaching of the gospel at the time of Christmas, an Advent sermon by a bishop of Hippo named St. Augustine. Listen to these words. See if the gospel doesn't cause you to say amen. Man's maker was made. He, the ruler of the stars, nursed at his mother's breast. The bread of life came and hungered for bread. The fountain of living water thirsted. The light of the world slept. The way was tired on a journey. The truth might be accused of false witnessing. The teacher and rabbi was beaten with whips. The foundation of heaven and earth hung suspended on a cross of wood. The strength of all the universe became weak and naked. The healer was wounded and life, the giver of life, died. Brothers and sisters, guests, non-Christians, we can participate in heavenly fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit because Jesus Christ shared, participated in sin's separation, in evil's alienation. He took on human flesh and in the likeness of sinful flesh, he rescued a broken world. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we join your Son and Spirit in the unity in this room in the name of Jesus power of the gospel, by the blood of Christ alone, we come now with one heart, with one mind, with one voice, and we pray. We pray that we would have humbled hearts. We pray that your spirit will guide our gaze upwards to exalt the Savior. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will promote holiness in this community, corporate, communal holiness, where we walk in the fellowship with one another. Lord, draw us out of our darkness into the light of your truth for the sake of our joy and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.